charting for calories. Yeah, but you can't chart on it, though. No, I know, but you can have a thing on the chart. Yeah, you can't like go to the old history and chart it. Is that it? That's it? Yeah. 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 I know. Yeah, I was That's not. That's the go word. All right, guys. the go word. That's 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 the this is a topic I know zero about, which means that you should know zero about it, too. So, so it'll be uh, very educational. Quite hubris of you. So hopefully you'll, you'll soon know all about it. Um, this is actually a huge topic, and so I, I kind of tried to focus as much as possible on DVT rather than PE. I'm going to discuss a little bit about PE, but it's much more... I think controversial, um, and it, it's kind of a subject on its own, so I didn't spend a lot of time on it, so kind of a cursory overview of that. Um, so just a you know, quick overview of thromboembolic disease, and this is something you guys are super aware of, and you guys are on the front lines of identifying these patients and, and taking care of these patients. DVT is very common. Um, it occurs in about 2 million American patients a year, um, with 600,000 of those patients developing PE as a result of their DVT. The combined annual incidence for DVT and PE is, uh, is 25 to 5% of the adult population with 200,000 people dying annually of PE. So, you know, we've all been made much more aware of this in the last decade um, and the importance of identifying these patients. DVT recurs uh, in about 5 to 10 percent of patients in the year after anticoagulant therapy is discontinued. So, say in a typical patient who has a six-month period of therapeutic anticoagulation after a DVT, in the year following discontinuation, they have a pretty high rate of recurrence of the DVT, in which case they would get lifelong anticoagulation. And then DVT actually recurs in 30% of patients um, within eight years of discontinuation of anticoagulation. And so a lot of these patients actually have underlying, either underlying reasons for getting the DVT in the first place, um, some kind of thrombophilia or a structural abnormality that's leading to it. Um, you know, a lot of patients with immobility and so forth um, and those patients really ought to be identified prospectively um, to get them on long-term anticoagulation um, pri you know, prior to recurrence of their DVT. Now, the goals of therapy in DVT are pretty simple. Um, they're prevention of pulmonary embolism, um, and 90% of pulmonary emboli actually arise from the deep veins of the legs, and so we're really focusing on the legs here. Um, prevention of DVT propagation, symptom relief, um, including long-term um, reduction of uh, post-thrombotic syndrome, which is really highly morbid. Historically, 
uh, our treatment has really been limited to anticoagulation. And this is still, you know, first-line therapy. And so as much as what I'm talking about today involves escalation of therapy, the primary therapy um, remains anticoagulation. This prevents propagation of DVT and reduces the incidence of pulmonary emboli. Um, secondarily, IVC filtration in patients who are not eligible for anticoagulation reduces PE risk in this. is very well established, but there are downsides to IVC filtration, which is why we don't put filters in everyone, and there's a much higher rate of subsequent DVT in patients with IVC filters, so we have to balance those risks. The limitations of anticoagulation are that it really only treats future thrombus or prevents propagation of thrombus it does not remove thrombus or lyse thrombus. And so it's really important to recognize that in most cases, when you put a patient on anticoagulation, you're leaving them with the thrombus that they have. It does allow the body's natural lytic properties to um, act unopposed. And so while you're not developing more thrombus, if you do have some flow past the thrombus, you're likely to auto-lyse. Um, but because it doesn't remove the thrombus, it doesn't prevent um, post-thrombotic syndrome in most patients. And the other limitation of anticoagulation is that it's difficult and expensive to manage in the outpatient setting. Post-thrombotic syndrome um, is actually quite significant, um, and especially more in the primary care world and in the vascular care world, um, this is a, a major long-term sequela of DVT. Um, it consists of chronic lymedema, heaviness, pain, venous claudication, stasis dermatitis, and in advanced cases, venous ulceration. The prevalence is anywhere from 49 to 60 percent um, in uh, studies that are available within two years of the first proximal DVT in patients that don't use um, compression garments. But it's actually been shown that in 70 percent of patients uh, have uh, post-thrombotic syndrome at five-year follow-up after anticoagulation therapy. Uh, post-thrombotic syndrome is a major cause of of all of the venous disease that exists in the country, and the treatment of chronic venous disease is greater than $300 million annually in the United States. So hugely morbid and huge, big effect on the population with 2 million workdays lost annually due to leg ulceration, and that doesn't include patients with venous claudication and other reasons why they can't work because of their post-thrombotic syndrome. So just a little discussion on location of thrombus. Iliofemoral versus femoral popliteal. The, the reason you'll see there's a difference in the way that these are treated is because of the difference in the way that these behave. So femoral popliteal DVT, anything below the inguinal ligament, is likely or is more likely to recant, not recanalize, but revascularize on its own. The leg can develop venous collaterals very readily. Um, so that's a less morbid condition than um, iliofemoral or even iliocable DVT, where you don't have the same ability to revascularize. Um, there are fewer collateral, potential collateral channels in the pelvis and abdomen, um, and those collateral channels are not very capable. Um, they're also not compressible, um, unlike the lower extremity um, collaterals that are compressible and allow for treatment of um, the increased venous uh, uh, pressure. So increases in ambulatory venous pressures because of iliofemoral DVT or uh, iliocable DVT much higher. Um, recurrent DVT is also much more frequent um, with iliac versus infrainguinal DVT. So that's why patients with central DVT are going to be more symptomatic and why those are patients that we're going to treat more aggressively long term. 
So what we're talking about with interventional treatment of DVT is essentially removal of thrombus, removal of the thrombus burden and recanalization of the um, native vein. The benefit is the elimination of the venous obstruction um, with early relief of symptoms and preservation of valve function. And the long-term post-thrombotic syndrome is not only due to the ongoing obstruction and collateralization, but also even if the body were to kind of autolyse the thrombus, the damage to the valves causes the long-term sequelae and the long-term post-thrombotic syndrome. Techniques for removing thrombus, historically, uh, surgical thrombectomy had been used. This is really out of favor because of the high invasiveness. Um, systemic thrombolysis does show some benefit, um, but it has a very high risk of bleeding. So again, systemic thrombolysis for DVT is fairly much out of favor. Catheter-directed thrombolysis is what I'm going to be talking about today, and this is really sort of the wave of the future or kind of the current wave um, in management of symptomatic DVT. So preservation of valve functions, to a short discussion on that. Um, early success at lysis correlates very significantly with future valve function, and there are multiple studies that have looked at um, anticoagulation versus catheter-directed therapy and future valve function, um, essentially whether or not there's venous reflux or not venous reflux in these patients. Um, at six months, it's been shown that 62% of patients who have... <coughs> Um, less than 50% lysis, so, you know, they have a 50% or greater remaining thrombus burden, are going to have valve incompetence over time. This is compared to 28% of patients who have complete lysis um, who have valve incompetence. So big difference in those two groups. Even with complete lysis, there is evidence that there can be damage to the valves. So in that 28% of patients, probably depends on how long that thrombus was sitting there. Catheter-directed thrombolysis um, is our technique of choice and really kind of the technique of choice now for removal of thrombus. Um, the advantages are that there's an increased efficacy compared with systemic lysis, and a lot of that is related to when we do catheter-directed um, thrombolysis, we're actually embedding the catheter in the thrombus itself and delivering that lytic right to the thrombus. Um, there's a decreased risk of bleeding compared with systemic lysis. And again, the reason for that is the delivery directly to the thrombus. The thrombin inhibitors have a very strong affinity for um, fibrin. And so when you embed them in the thrombus, they're not free to go systemically. They get activated right at the site. Um, so the much lower dose of um, bleeding uh, than with systemic lysis. And again, high intrathrombus dose of lytic without the high systemic dose. Um, we also, because we have a catheter within the thrombus, this allows us to do some mechanical disruption of the thrombus, um, exposing more surface area of the thrombus, and much, again, getting a much more effective penetration and activity of the lytic to the thrombus. Mm -hmm. How invasive is this procedure? I'm going to go into the whole detail of exactly how it's done. Um, and then a lot of these patients, and in some studies up to 52% of these patients actually have an underlying structural abnormality, either like a venous web or a venous compression syndrome, that's causing the DVT in the first place. So having access to the vein actually allows us to treat the underlying structural cause, which is going to reduce um, the long-term risk of recurrence in these patients. Um, some studies of catheter-directed therapy versus anticoagulation. One of the limitations um, for us is that there's really no, well, there are no results yet from the large randomized controlled trial of catheter-directed therapy compared with anticoagulation. That study is still enrolling. 
Um, and so I believe they have only about 100 patients left to enroll in that study. It's been going on for um, many years now. Um, once that data, once those data are out, we're going to have a much better idea of this. But these are all smaller trials, some of them randomized, some of them just um, registries. Um, in one randomized control trial uh, for iliofemoral DVT of catheter-directed therapy versus anticoagulation showed a big difference in the outcomes. So 72% venous patency and 11% reflux, so risk of post-thrombotic syndrome with the catheter-directed therapy as opposed to 12% venous patency and 42% reflux with anticoagulation. So again, this translates um, to long-term benefit in terms of those chronic um, venous stasis sequelae. Our group in Charleston, West Virginia, um, Abu Rama was my partner there. Uh, we demonstrated a five-year follow-up of 69% venous patency and 22% post-thrombotic syndrome in patients who underwent catheter-directed therapy as opposed to 18% venous patency and 70% post-thrombotic syndrome in patients with anticoagulation alone. Again, big difference in the long-term outcomes um, for these patients. Another single-center randomized trial showed um, better venous function by plethysmography, and prospective non-randomized registry-based um, study showed symptom resolution in 70% of catheter-directed therapy patients at five years compared with 30% with anticoagulation. So there's a, there's, there are multiple <coughs> studies that are small that show evidence, but we're really waiting for this big randomized controlled trial to give us the definitive risk-benefit ratio. And risk of lysis is real. Um, so the, the best data that we have is a pooled analysis of 19 published studies that, that included a, just over 1,000 patients treated with catheter-directed therapy. And the cumulative incidences of PE and PE-related death were, were low, but not zero. Um, but there's a big concern for a lot of people that when you go in and you manipulate the thrombus, you're creating a risk for PE. What was found in the pooled analysis was that it's really comparable to cohorts treated with anticoagulation. So uh, less than 1%, uh, 0.9% risk of PE and a 0.1% risk of fatal PE in patients treated with catheter-directed therapy. And based on this data, actually, there's a recommendation that um, IVC filters not be placed during catheter-directed therapy because the risk is so low and actually probably um, is exceeded by the risk of placing a filter. Um, additionally, major bleeding, always a big concern when we're delivering uh, thrombolytics. Major bleeding rate in this pooled analysis was 8%, but it's important to recognize that that 8% includes all patients who required transfusions or had bleeding that required um, discontinuation of therapy. So in my patients, if I have quite a bit of bleeding at the access site, I'm going to discontinue therapy, and that's the most common cause of bleeding. So most of those 8% were discontinuation of therapy because of bleeding or um, had uh, administration of um, transfusions. The intracranial bleeding rate, which is really the big one, um, was 0.2%. The benefits of lysis, um, I've reviewed already early, earlier symptom relief uh, due to faster elimination of obstruction, the opportunity to uncover the underlying structural or anatomic abnormality and potentially treat. Um, and again, up to 52% of patients do have some kind of underlying venous stenosis that's contributing to uh, the DVT and will contribute to a recurrence. Um, there is reduced recurrence of DVT in patients who undergo catheter-directed therapy and a decreased rate of post-thrombotic syndrome. 
still we have to be careful about indications. So not every patient that has a DVT should have um, aggressive catheter-directed therapy um, because of, you know, we have to consider the risk-benefit ratio. Uh, the number one absolute essential indication for catheter-directed therapy is arterial ischemia, secondary to um, the venous um, engorgement. Um, this is phlegmatious cerulean dolens. I don't know how many people have had an opportunity to see patients with this problem, but it's devastating. Um, and in those patients, even with a moderate um, risk of bleeding, really ought to be treated because the alternative is amputation. Um, the second um, indication would be IVC thrombosis um, in patients with moderate or severe lower extremity and abdominal symptoms in patients who have a low or moderate bleeding risk. Acute iliofemoral DVT um, in an ambulatory patient with a long life expectancy and a low bleeding risk can also be considered for therapy. And the reason for that is the longer life expectancy contributes to a higher risk of post-thrombotic syndrome over time. Um, acute femoropopliteal DVT, again, in highly ambulatory patients, long life expectancy and low bleeding risk um, can also be considered. And a lot of this has to do with how symptomatic they are at the time. Subacute and chronic uh, DVT don't respond nearly as well. Um, so we really are trying to treat these patients within a three-week window, and the sooner the better. So subacute and chronic iliofemoral DVT can be treated, but really only in patients with very low bleeding risk um, and with very severe symptoms. So moving on to technique, I'm just going to show you guys kind of how we do this procedure. Um, this is a thrombosed leg. Um, so in patients with... Um, Infrainguinal DVT, obviously, if you access at the femoral veins, you're going to miss a lot of thrombus. So most of these patients, by the time we get them, are going to have had propagation of a central DVT down into their femoral system. We want to get distal or peripheral to that, um, and so we treat most of these patients prone. So we lay them prone on the table and actually access with ultrasound the popliteal vein and run the catheters up from there. So a lot of times when you're looking at our venograms on these patients, the patient's actually flipped. If you're used to looking at it so that it's right-left, they're actually going to be left-right um, because you're actually looking at their back. Um, we try to label them so you actually know which side you're looking at, but um, all of these images are going to be prone images. So in this patient, for instance, we're looking at the right leg. So this is the popliteal vein in this patient extending up into the femoral vein, and this ought to be a big, fat vein. So we've accessed here injecting some contrast under fluoro, and you see just this kind of stream of contrast that's actually surrounding a very large thrombus. On venography or angiography, you're looking at luminography, so you're looking for the channel, um, and here basically the channel's absent, and you're just outlining this big cast of thrombus that's sitting in there. Once we get our catheter in there, we're going to navigate across the thrombus. Um, so again, with this patient prone, this is the um, patient's left uh, common femoral vein, femoral vein. We should be seeing iliac here, and what you see is some contrast in the common femoral vein going into a tapered occlusion. Um, the tip of the catheter is right here and injecting, and you can see really there's no flow centrally. Um, with uh, a wire, you can traverse that thrombus, um, and we've got what this is a trellis device across the, the thrombus here for treatment. 
once uh, we get across the thrombus, we're going to We have a couple of different options, um, and this is where you know different practices are going to vary um, on how they they treat once they get across. You can either just initiate uh, a thrombolytic infusion, um, which is kind of the classic way to treat. Um, you put in a, a multi-side hole infusion catheter, basically has holes all along its side, embedded in the thrombus, and just drip TPA into that with the patient in the ICU. Um, we're going to do that maybe 12 hours at a time, bring them down, take another look, see what kind of progress we're making, and go from there. Uh, alternatively, um, a lot of folks, including myself, like to do some mechanical disruption of the thrombus with balloons or other devices um, in order to expose more thrombus surface area um, to get more lytic into the thrombus. Um, and then a lot of times after that, go ahead and send them upstairs with a lytic infusion. Or we can do both simultaneously. In the cases that I'm going to show you, had both being done simultaneously with the device that, that we're using here fairly frequently. Um, so this is a cartoon of a lytic infusion catheter, and again, it's just a long catheter um, with a radiopaque marker here and here, defining the area of uh, multi-side hole catheters. It's delivered over the wire. Um, once you pull the wire out, this actually closes. This is, has a little fish mouth valve there. Some of them have an occlusion wire. But basically what that does is it forces all the lytic to come out through the side holes instead of out through the end hole. When you have this embedded into the thrombus, then all of that is just going to penetrate into the thrombus and gradually d dissolve the thrombus. Uh, concurrently, it's very important to administer low-dose IV heparin. Um, that actually just um, pre prevents um, thrombus uh, development at the access site itself. Um, so you don't want your catheter where you've gone into the vein to thrombose while you're treating the thrombus. So we just do a low-dose heparin. Therapeutic heparin is actually not really recommended because there's a much higher risk of bleeding with therapeutic heparin on board. So if someone's on my Coumadin already, you'd stop that before the Yeah, you know, that's tough if they're on Coumadin already. Um, one of the challenges is that you're going to need to... So if they're therapeutically anticoagulated and they develop a severe DBT, if I thrombolyse them, they're likely to occlude again. So those patients are kind of contraindicated for this kind of therapy because they're not, because it's real important to get them anticoagulated afterwards. If they were already anticoagulated and they rethrombose, they're going to be in a highly uh, thrombogenic state after the procedure, they're likely to rethrombose again. Um, so it doesn't come up much because usually those patients have already kind of failed therapy. Um, there are a couple ways to augment um, thrombolytic infusion. One of the popular devices um, does ultrasonic augmentation of, of the lytic to help it penetrate the thrombus. Um, they, what they say, so they have a catheter that has lots of little uh, ultrasound nodes along its length along with those side holes. And as you drip your thrombus in, you're delivering high energy ultrasound into the thrombus, which um, is supposed to break down the, the fibrin in kind of help the, the lytic infuse. You know, the studies that they have show shorter times to, um, to completion of lysis. Uh, we don't have the device here. It's fairly expensive. Realytic thrombectomy, um, which is the angiojet device, is another device that can in augment infusion. You can um, deliver a power pulse of um, lytic into the thrombus with the device, and then it uses a venturi effect to actually um, kind of 
pulse and then suck thrombus out of the vein. And we do that um, occasionally, both in arteries and in veins. And then concurrent mechanical disruption, which is the trellis device, which I showed you there, and actually both of these cases use that, is a balloon occlusion of a segment. It's got a proximal and a distal occlusion balloon. And then kind of an egg beater, not really an egg beater, but a wire that oscillates within the thrombus while you're infusion, infusing the lytic. Um, and then once you've kind of done that for a period of about 10 minutes, you can aspirate out all of that thrombus and lytic. So theoretically, it reduces your systemic exposure to lytic and also macerates the thrombus and allows for um, improved access of the lytic to the thrombus. The lytic agents that are popular now, I mean, most of the literature that we have is actually based on urokinase. Um, urokinase was very safe from a bleeding standpoint, um, but was taken off the market for a long period of time, was back on the market, and had already kind of been replaced by Altaplace. So most people don't use urokinase anymore, and, um, but most of our data is based on urokinase. But currently we use um, TPA. Um, some places use Retaplace, and actually some places use Connectaplace, but we're using Altaplace. Um, I like uh, about the Altaplace that it has a very short half-life. So I know that if I administer um, TPA in a short-term setting, just a short bolus of TPA, um, that it's gone by the time I'm sending my patient upstairs. Obviously, with an ongoing lytic infusion, um, that's not as clear, but once I bring the patient down, discontinue their TPA infusion and do a little work on them, I know we're done and there's no more TPA in the system. And so that's a real advantage of that short half-life. It also has a very high affinity for fibrin-bound um, plasminogen rather than free plasminogen, which also helps it to stay localized to your thrombus when you're delivering it into the thrombus. Um, Half-life of 15 minutes for the retoplace and actually 22 minutes for tenecteplase. Um, but because of its very high fibrin specificity, um, there's a low uh, risk of major bleeding with tenecteplase, which is an advantage. Um, so contraindications to catheter-directed therapy are specifically thrombolysis, and the absolute contraindications are the ones you really need to know. All of these contraindications are actually based on the literature for systemic delivery of TPA. So we don't really know what the absolute contraindications are for catheter-directed delivery of um, lytic. Um, so these are all extrapolated from that systemic literature. Um, but I think it's pretty fair to say that active bleeding is a fair contraindication to delivery of a, a thrombolytic agent. Uh, DIC, um, a recent cerebrovascular event, neurosurgery, or intracranial trauma within three months. And uh, any absolute contraindication to anticoagulation would also be an absolute contraindication to lysis. Strong relative contraindications are many, um, but again, these are relative. So you really have to look at the patient and look at the scenario instead of considering these um, absolute. So if a patient has um, phlegmasia and they have uncontrolled hypertension, you may want to consider it may be reasonable to go ahead, um, especially if you can isolate and be careful about how much systemic lytic you're giving. And then post-procedural care for these patients is really, really important. And one of the things that we've observed is if you don't get immediate therapeutic anticoagulation with unfractionated heparin following the procedure, they thrombose immediately. And you remember that these patients, once you've removed the thrombus, you've denuded the endothelium, you've done all kinds of abuse to that vein or the artery in arterial patients. And so they're at really high risk for rethrombosis based on Beerhouse triad. So um, these patients, I always make sure they actually leave us on a heparin drip 
um, and I've been fighting with pharmacy to make sure we have a much clearer algorithm for getting these patients on a, a, a pharmacy protocol for TPA, I mean for um, heparin. Symptomatic relief is going to take some time because these patients have you know, massively distended and edematous limbs, um, but they should start feeling some very um, good symptomatic relief within a couple of days. I think three to five days is kind of long. That's what's reported. Um, but usually you'll see them within one or two days start getting some relief. Um, we need to bridge them to long-term anticoagulation for a first-time DVT in a patient that um, has a good reason for a DVT. I'll usually do three to six months of anticoagulation. Um, and also if they have a filter, really strive to get that filter out to reduce their risk for rethrombosis. Um, graduated compression stockings are key, and actually in a lot of these patients, I'll put um, sequential de compression devices on them immediately downstairs and have them go up with them. Um, I've been a little dismayed to have those removed by the medicine service. Um, we're really trying to augment flow because flow allows continued lysis. And so those are there when I send them up. They're there for a reason. Um, to augment the flow to continue the body's own lysis of whatever thrombus is left. And then hematologic sub, uh, testing should be performed in a subset of patients. Um, any patients under 50 years of age with a DVT without an exacerbating event that you can identify, uh, recurrent DVT on anticoagulation, DVT during pregnancy or during the first year of oral contraceptive use and a family history of DVT, which is really two first-degree relatives with a DVT. All of those patients should be worked up. So my understanding of the hematologic uh, testing, if they're on Coumadin, um, you're going to get some unusual uh, results that are not necessarily reliable. It's true. And there are certain things that you can get and certain things that you can't get. Um, and... You know, obviously, a factor five ligand you should be able to do with them on Coumadin. Um, a yeah, like the protein C and protein S. You have to be careful. I forget. I don't think it's both of them. I'm, I'm blanking. I always have to look it up. Um, but you can get some of the studies with them on on Coumadin or heparin. But there are a couple of them you have to wait until you discontinue. But the most common ones, actually, the most common abnormalities are actually going to be um, testable with them on. So just a couple of cases I want to show you. Um, these are really good examples. Actually, these are really good examples of why you have to be thoughtful about who you put filters into. Um, and we've had uh, three patients in the last year who've gotten filters for contraindication to anticoagulation who then went on to thrombose their cava. Um, got to remember that you're putting something into the vein that's stimulating the endothelium in patients that are often bed-bound who already have DVT. Um, and those patients are already at risk for progression of DVT. You're not anticoagulating them and you're stimulating their vein. And a lot of those patients are at risk for thrombosis. So it's real important, again, to really be selective about who gets IVC filters. So this is a 30-year-old uh, male um, with a history of prolactinoma. Actually, he started lactating at age 15, and his primary care physician told him it was normal. Um, so at age 30, um, he ended up getting diagnosed with his prolactinoma and had a resection at another hospital, had a, po a perioperative um, MCA-CVA um, with very dense hemiparesis. And so he was transferred here to UCI to our rehab unit, 
um, and was making progress on rehab. Um, his neurosurgeon was not comfortable with DVT prophylaxis, and uh, one day he developed shortness of breath. He had this CT angiogram that shows very large pulmonary emboli bilaterally, and he had a DVT study that showed a left popliteal DVT. So he was um, referred to us for um, IVC filter for contraindication to anticoagulation um, with a PE and a DVT. I think this was appropriate. Um, here's his IVC, his cavagram at the time of placement. So the catheter is in the right iliac vein, um, injecting contrast. Uh, we look for inflow from the left side to make sure that there are no anatomic anomalies, um, looking for a nice, good-sized cava that a filter is going to um, be appropriately sized for, looking for the renal vein uh, inflow here. Um, and that all looks good. Normal-looking cava. Um, he got an IVC filter. Um, this person did a, uh, a cavagram after placement of the filter, and the filter looks fine. Mm -hmm. I well, he was he was prescribed. You know, they had written the orders for the sequential compression devices, but they, I don't think they were being adhered to. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, you go up and you visit these patients on the floor, and they have SCDs on the bed next to them with the machine turned on, and they're 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 compressing sequentially, just not on the legs. Um, so after his filter placement, he got worsening bilateral lower extremity swelling, worsening pain. Um, he became unable to participate in rehab. Uh, this is a guy who was active. He's a vegan. He's a photographer. He's an avid yoga. Um, I think he was actually a yoga instructor at some point. I mean, young, totally viable guy, 30 years old. Um, basically couldn't participate anymore, couldn't walk. Um, neurosurgery at some point did agree to start therapeutic anticoagulation uh, with low molecular weight heparin. Actually, no, it wasn't therapeutic. It was prophylactic. So they were willing to do prophylactic level uh, Lovenox um, for his, you know, increasing DVT with no improvement. And they were in a bind. I mean, he had a hypervascular tumor, um, big problem. So this was his follow-up um, DVT study. They only did the left leg on this one, and he has extensive left lower extremity thrombus, and actually the superior margin of the thrombus couldn't be determined. You can see non-compressible common femoral and profundofemoral veins, or femoral and profundofemoral veins there. So um, the wife called up to UCLA, and UCLA said, well, you've got somebody there that can do that. She finally got in touch with me, and... We had a long talk about, you know, the risks and benefits of this, and they really felt that his quality of life at this point, if he couldn't proceed with um, his rehab, was going to be completely dismal, and he didn't want to live if he couldn't proceed with his rehab. Um, so we talked about using the, the trellis device with the, um, the balloon occlusion, the balloon isolation. Um, not perfect, certainly some risk of lytic going systemically, um, but probably lower than any other device we decided to go ahead um, and try to lyse him. So here's his uh, initial venogram. Again, he's prone. I'm accessing the popliteal veins bilaterally. Uh, and again, because um, venography is luminography, you can't really see 
what's going on unless you kind of use your imagination. And what we've got here, so on uh, the patient's left side, we've got that common femoral vein with the tapering. I showed you this image earlier. No flow centrally. Um, both lower extremities were full of thrombus. Um, on his right side, I've got a catheter up through this entire uh, thrombosed iliac system to his common iliac. Here's the contrast that I'm injecting. Here, 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 here. So this is his common iliac vein full of thrombus with a trickle of contrast going through there, and you don't see anything going up into his cava. Here's his IVC. Uh, here's the catheter entering from um, his left side. Um, and again, little bits of contrast coming up to the filter, which is now tilted, probably from massive pushing from that thrombus trying to push that filter out of place. So, um, we didn't know what we were going to be getting into here, and this was pretty bad. Um, we, you can actually use this device within a filter if a filter's been there for three weeks. This has actually been going on for a month, so this is a subacute to chronic um, kind of thrombus. So these can be very resistant to lysis. Not, not a very good potential that we're going to eliminate this at all. Um, got two balloons. I didn't want to come too close to this. This is full of thrombus. If I do too much here, I'm going to push all that thrombus right through the filter into his lungs. Um, so we planted uh, double balloons from either side right here to occlude the cava. Uh, he's got the trellis device, and you can see this is that oscillation wire coming down, and then balloon occluding the femoral veins. We did the infusions here with the oscillation for 10 minutes, pulled down, did both of the legs. Um, and then this just shows you what it looks like. So there's the double balloons, uh, oscillation. Ours is longer than that. This is for a shorter segment vein. You've got um, infusion through multiple side holes here and an aspiration port. And this is what it looks like going through the thrombus on a cartoon. So when we were done, um, this is what we had. So on the left side, um, patent but small with some residual mural thrombus. Uh, on the right side, um, a little bit larger residual thrombus. And although this looks awful, we actually saw spontaneous through this segment. You can see this little bit of clot bouncing around on the venogram, um, kind of stuck under there but loose. This is a good stopping point. One of the things that's really great is that if, as long as you can get flow past um, thrombus in these patients and uh, you have them therapeutically anticoagulated, they're not going to develop any more new thrombus and their, their natural system, as long as it's intact, is going to go ahead and lyse the rest. So. Um, we sent him out with this. I just saw him in clinic, actually, um, about two weeks ago, and he's uh, nine months post-thrombolysis. Um, he did six months of anticoagulation. His last duplex showed no evidence of any residual thrombus at all uh, in his lower extremities. Um, I removed his IVC filter, um, and he's actually ambulating without assistance, and he rides a three-wheel recumbent bike for exercise. And he has just a little bit of left lower extremity swelling. So this is just a fabulous outcome for this guy. Here's his cavogram uh, when we removed his filter. Um, so you can see um, that you know he's got some irregularity in here, very narrowed cava, um, but patent with really brisk flow. So I'm really happy with that outcome. You know he's at some risk, um, but 
as long as he remains active, he he ought not to rethrombose. Quick question. Mm -hmm. You briefly mentioned like the, if the clot had been there for a long time, it's going to be really resistant to thrombolysis. Yeah. Are there any other things that predict kind of resistance to thrombolysis, like its location, but it's like iliofemoral or um, location, not so much. Um, resi resistance to lysis is really mostly based on the age of the thrombus. Um, ability to, um, to do a long-term clearance of that segment that's going to be durable is somewhat related to anatomy. Um, so again, if, if there are underlying structural abnormalities, like congenital structural abnormalities, um, a lot of Patients will have, say, you know, very small, congenitally very small IBC, and those may not um, open up well long term. Um, but the ability to clear thrombus is mostly related to its age. Yeah. Is there a new way to talk with thrombotic syndrome from that new acute on chronic DVT is quicker than getting another ultrasound, or is that really the only way to go about it? Um, well, there are characteristics of post-thrombotic syndrome, um, so there's going to be more chronicity. Um, so a lot of it is related to really kind of teasing out the history from the patient. You know, they shouldn't have an acute onset of an event. Post-thrombotic syndrome is going to be associated with skin changes, and particularly um, you get some chronic skin changes that include loss of the subcutaneous fat in that area, um, rather than swelling kind of kind of contraction in that area of the tissue changes, um, you know, ulceration. Um, but most, mostly it's going to be related to kind of the time course of the, of the pain. Um, so this is another lady that we saw, and most of you probably saw, or some of you probably saw this lady in the ER. Um, she was a 49-year-old female with uh, really severe menorrhagia, resulting anemia, came to the ED with abdominal pain, fever, nausea, and vomiting, had a CT of the abdomen and pelvis, that showed possible diverticulitis and a left femoral vein DVT um, with bilateral lower extremity DVT. So here's her left common femoral vein uh, DVT, and uh, here's her duplex at the time of her presentation. So she has a long segment of left lower extremity DVT and a, a popliteal vein thrombus on the right. Um, she had um, ongoing very heavy vaginal bleeding and had uterine fibroids on ultrasound. Um, because of her ongoing vaginal bleeding um, the, and because of her uh, coexisting possible diverticulitis, the decision was made not to treat her fibroid disease at the time. And either way, she couldn't be anticoagulated even for surgery. So um, the decision was made to place a filter in her. Um, again, here's her cavogram at the time of uh, placement. Really nice big cava. Here's the renal vein inflow. Um, here's the left common iliac vein inflow. Um, so she got the filter, kind of got tucked in, uh, plan set up, went home, and after discharge she returned in a couple of days with severe um, increasing bilateral lower extremity pain, actually right leg more than left, um, and had a repeat duplex that showed extension of the bilateral lower extremity DVT. Um, at this time she was having no further vaginal bleeding, and she had a long pattern of very heavy vaginal bleeding with um, long periods with very short intermenstrual intervals, um, and the thought was that at this point she was in one of those intermenstrual intervals. So here's the right uh, side with the DVT. So again, from a popliteal vein thrombus to a very extensive um, right lower extremity thrombosis, again, superior aspect of the thrombus not identified. So 
again, since she was in her intramenstrual interval, um, the plan, we talked to her about all of her options, um, and the plan was for catheter-directed therapy because of her severe symptoms um, and our concern for cable thrombosis again. And then also a plan for uterine artery embolization to follow uh, one to two days later to treat her fibroids um, so that her bleeding risk would, so that she could be on anticoagulation long-term with no significant bleeding risk. So that's what we chose to do. Again, here's her cavagram. Um, so here's her filter. Here's uh, her cava. There's contrast around these lumps of thrombus here. And here's thrombus extending above the filter up into the suprarenal IBC. Um, we should just see flow above that. So again, here's that um, little bit of clot right here above the filter and then spontaneous flow above there. So we actually need to protect this from flying off while we're um, treating. So we actually put the occlusion balloons up above um, and did the whole thing again, just like with the last patient. Her thrombus was very resistant, um, and it turns out that that left lower extremity thrombus was probably chronic. Um, she didn't seem to be particularly symptomatic from it, and it was, it was highly resistant, and she actually had collateral formation in the left lower extremity. Um, but when we're finished, again, this is a fairly good result. We actually sent her upstairs for overnight infusion after the, after the trellis procedure, um, and she came back with this. So pretty good spontaneous flow, some chunks in the filter, um, some mural thrombus here in the IVC with the expectation that she um, should clear. What happened with her, though, is that she went upstairs. She's the one, one of the patients that had her SCDs removed and heparin orders changed by the medicine service, and um, she actually rethrombosed her left lower extremity. And I saw her back in clinic um, about three weeks ago, and she's got pretty bad pedal edema on the left, um, but otherwise is doing okay and I think is not worth uh, doing anything about. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts about uh, using SCDs in someone with a known DVT? Um, a lot of times the nurses won't do it. I know, yeah. Um, so she has a filter, so I'm super not worried. Um, if she didn't have a filter and I had done extensive lysis um, along with mechanical disruption and I'd been in there manipulating like crazy and I hadn't knocked it off, an SCD is not going to knock it off, so I'm not concerned. And the augmentation of flow, to me, is way more useful. And actually, it's not just augmentation of flow. You actually augment your lytic pathways through the compression um, beyond just the flow. So I think the benefit is pretty high and the risk is pretty low. Yeah, I was just going to say that I thought that one of the main mechanisms of the squeezers is that it releases prostaglandins so you can throw them on their arms. Yeah, you can put them on their feet, you can put them anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, so if the nurses are super uncomfortable and you just want to play the game of getting around them, just put it on their arm. You know, if they're just refusing, I guess that would work. Is there actually data to show that I think it's theoretical. I've never seen any data. I don't know if anybody else has. Cool. Yeah, so she's rethrombosed, which is a bummer, but her, we did do her um, uterine artery embolization the day following, and uh, her bleeding is completely gone. She's, she's done very well from that. Um, so just a really quick segue into uh, intervention for PE. Um, again, this is fairly controversial. It's very controversial in interventional radiology circles. We had big fights about this this year at our, at our annual meeting. 
Um, one of the important things is the distinction between massive and submassive PE. So massive PE, my philosophy is that these people are just about to die and you've done everything you can for them and this is like a last ditch effort and I usually, if you call me about them, I'm going to say, do you want them to die up there or down here? You know, and they might as well, honestly, die on my table with us trying, but you know, you have to have that discussion with the family and really make it clear that the likelihood of them having a positive outcome from this experience is really low. That being said, I would say here at UCI, um, I've been very impressed with the outcomes of the, um, the PE interventions that I've seen here. Um, not my own, because um, I haven't done that many here, but I, there's actually been a history, and I, I think our group actually published a, a paper on our outcomes. Um, so it works occasionally, but you just really need to let people know that they, they may not there's a high likelihood they won't make it. Um, so massive PE, um, the definition is that it's associated with systemic arterial hypertension, hypotension. Um, really important that they be therapeutically anticoagulated. No point in doing this if they're not. Um, systemic thrombolysis, um, the described therapy is 100 milligrams of TPA over two hours intravenously. This has a 20% risk of hemorrhage and a 3 to 5% risk of hemorrhagic stroke. So not benign, um, although that's FDA-approved indication for um, uh, thrombolysis. Catheter-directed therapy, the goal of catheter-directed therapy is not necessarily to deliver lytic into the thrombus, but it's more to break up the thrombus. And so what we're really dealing with is central um, obstructive PE and the hemodynamic effects of that. So what we're really trying to do is just get out there and break that up so it showers distally and stops that hemodynamic process that's going on. In terms of submassive PE, this is much more controversial. Um, this is defined as right heart strain without systemic hypotension. Um, the rationale for escalating therapy that people use is that RV enlargement on chest x-ray predicts an increased 30-day risk of mortality in patients with PE, and that survivors are at risk for chronic PE and thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So you're providing them benefit in the long term um, is what the advocates of, of this therapy suggest. Um, a suggested algorithm for this as published in circulation um, with submassive PE is looking at if in patients with elevated biomarkers, RV dysfunction on echocardiography or RV enlargement on CT, consider it. Um, so if there's a contraindication to fibrinolysis, then you're, you're going to move on to catheter-assisted embolectomy. But if they can have fibrinolysis, still go down that lytic route. Um, if there's no contraindication to embolectomy, we're going to do that. Surgical embolectomy, I don't, have you guys seen anybody go to surgical embolectomy for PE here? Does anybody ever do that anymore? Because every time I've suggested it, people have laughed at me. Um, <laughs> but it's always in the algorithm, right? And we're like, how about? Um, and then um, if you can't do any of that, anticoagulation and filter insertion. So this is a good indication for filter insertion. If they still have DVT and they're crumping, um, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and put in a filter. So in summary, um, interventional therapies um, are available um, for improvement in outcomes in select patients with thromboembolic disease, but risk stratification is really critical to ensuring best outcomes in these groups. And both acute and chronic complications of thromboembolism can be ameliorated in appropriately selected patients. And I was asked to put questions in here for you guys. So, Let's see how I did. 
So number one, I hope a true-false was okay. Yeah. Um, so iliofemoral DVT should be routinely treated with catheter-directed therapy. True or false? Number two, the risk of hemorrhagic complications with catheter-directed therapy is equivalent to that with systemic thrombolysis. True or false? And number three, the risk of PE during catheter-directed therapy for lower extremity DVT is A, 5%, D, 10%, C, less than 1%. And I gave you that one. I had a question about uh, the use of CDT. Um, it seems to be a great tactic to break up the thrombus. Is there any kind of like vision to use it for ischemic stroke? Or events like that? Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, our stroke program is based on uh, intra-arterial uh, treatment for stroke. You know, you, you want to get those patients in the six-hour window. You can, um, if you get them in the six-hour window, you can deliver intra-arterial lysis. But now there are very specific adjuncts for um, intracranial removal of thrombus. And actually that ecosystem, the ultrasound um, delivery system, was started with intracranial um, uh, augmentation of lysis. So you don't want to, one thing you don't want to do is break up thrombus in the brain and send it distally. So it's a little bit different than what we can get away with. You know, if you fragment a little thrombus and send it to the lungs, it's actually not really a big deal, a small amount of thrombus. Um, but obviously in the brain, uh, end, end branch uh, embolization is a bad thing. So um, there's a device called the Mercy device that you can put up into the thrombus. It's like a little coil that you deliver into the thrombus and actually pull thrombus out. Um, and then there's a penumbra device, which is a balloon occlusion catheter that you suck, you do suction and pull thrombus out. It's the same window as TPA. So um, it's longer. So the kind of official window for intraarterial, oh, for um, you know, for just pulling stuff out. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is based on imaging. So if you have um, a big ischemic penumbra. Uh, on uh, either CT perfusion or MR perfusion, you can proceed um, without significant risk. Um, so there's not an absolute limit for that. So this is kind of a topic, but um, of interest to in, I think us in the emergency department is uh, you know, we always are getting stroke codes. Patients coming in may or may not have some kind of ischemic. They ruled out for hemorrhagic strokes. Now they have some, potentially some kind of ischemic stroke somewhere. And it seems like, I'm confused at least, because the neurology team will say, you know, MRI head and neck, and then 10 minutes later, CTA had good perfusion, and then five minutes later, they change it, and CTA head and neck again or something. Is there any kind of <laughs> guideline in our system, our radiology <laughs> system? That That's interesting. Different studies? Okay. You know, I'd like to be able to just throw it over again. Well. 
Where's the resource so I can learn myself? You know, you don't. You shouldn't be ordering it from the neurologist to the side. So you need a stroke neurologist. We're a stroke center. We should have stroke neurologists all the time on call, and we're supposed to, but we don't have enough of them. They keep leaving, so they're trying to get more of it. And some of the stroke neurologists are upset at the other neurologists for not calling them for consultations. Oh. So uh, you should always ask the resident, was a stroke neurology attending involved? And say, oh, no, no, it was our seizure doctor. Well, can you call the stroke neurologist? Oh, he's not on call. Well, then you should call him anyway, because they usually will tell you the exact <laughs> 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 Also, Dr. Suzuki, one of our colleagues, is a neurointerventionist. He will, he, you could always call him or his colleague, because they'll probably tell you the right thing to do, too. Yeah. So I so one of my my current tasks actually is to address a lot of these issues of um, algorithms for appropriate imaging because um, they're one sort of unique thing I've noticed at UCI is that it's kind of an imaging free for all um, and it's an imaging ordering free for all and my feeling is that the reason you have radiologists on call is that we should be able to actually advise you about what might be the most appropriate imaging for a particular indication because it's kind of complicated so I'm actually working on this project and we're starting with we're starting with abdominal imaging um, because it's a very broad scope um, but ultimately we're going to try to address neuro next um, and then some of the other things that aren't quite as as big a problem. Um, but anyone who wants to be involved in that process with me as sort of a voice of the customer and um, kind of on the clinical, you know, frontline side, I really appreciate. So if you'd like to participate or anyone else, if you email me, I'll uh, involve you because I need, I need some of you guys involved in the process too so we're not really dictating it. But Dr. Suzuki or Dr. Senturk or Dr. Fareed, the three neuro guys should be able to give you guidance on that, especially in a patient who's potentially um, going to have or is, you know, has the potential for intervention. They have very specific things that they're going to want. Um, and usually those are going to be perfusion imaging. So you would want to contact them and make sure. Can you do this for upper extremity thrombosis too? Yes. In fact, um, I just I didn't have enough room to show you guys everything. Um, I had a really nice case a few months ago of a lady who had acute onchronic upper extremity DVT with just massive, horrible post-thrombotic syndrome and then acute erythema um, and edema. So similar indications. Yeah, and we did a lysis on her with a really, really nice result, cleared the whole thing. Um, so upper extremities actually are very um, amenable to this. Um, so yes. And, you know, what... what what I would recommend is because since vascular surgery doesn't actually do any venous thrombolysis and they'll usually ultimately refer these patients to us, you guys can feel free to call us directly and we're happy to manage them and, you know, admit them in the whole thing. We have a very, I mean, we admit patients and we um, can just take care of this stuff. So, so you know, you can just call us and we'll do a consult and um, evaluate whether we think they, they should have lysis. UCI Health Systems has developed clinical algorithms for both DVT and PE management. Yes. So I was, I'm involved in all these because I have to approve all the drugs. Mm -hmm. So I, we, uh, I just printed them out. The one for DVT is way out of date. I noticed it wasn't updated since 2006. It's being updated as we speak. But the one for PE, we updated with interventional neurology after I heard him lecture. Don Nguyen uh -huh. lectured here about 
18 months ago, and they updated it uh, about March of last year. Mm -hmm. It includes many of the things you mentioned about interventional radiology, call them and when to call them. So these are all on the internet. We definitely need to do the DVT one again. Yeah, so Mark uh, Behe and I are working yeah. on that. We met actually two hours ago, uh, and we're close to finalizing a new um, algorithm that's much simpler than that. It doesn't have all of those that extraneous information. Um, and really kind of outlines this whole thing that we talked about today. You might want to, we probably should update the um, one for PG because it's like 15 months ago. Yeah, and we're ta we were talking about that a little bit today too. So I'm sure, it sounds like you'll be involved in that process it's, as well. It's Dr. Uh, I think that Alvahoda has left. He was involved in developing the pathway for the PG from activism. So it's 